Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Take a seat, friends. Great to be with you tonight. Thanks, Jez. Uh, if we ever met before, my name is Mike, and I'm part of the team here in Canada, one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. Been away for a few weeks on holiday. Well, I was actually I was back last week, wasn't I? But then I went away again and came back again. So it's been very exciting like that, you know, which is, I'm sure, what you came to hear. Anyway, let's... let's uh, Jenny has also been away. Thanks, Jeremy. Anyone else? Sure. Other people have been away? Some people have been away. People have been away. Yeah. Good update. Great. <laughs> Find me at the coffee cart for more updates, as scintillating as that later on. Hey, uh, if, if you're online, uh, it's great to be with you today. Speaking of people who have just come back, my man Jeremy Wilkes behind the camera tonight. You led, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big snap for Wilkes. Uh, if you're online, it's so good to be with you. And uh, we just pray that you'll sense the hope of the Lord tonight as well. Hey, um, as I come to bring the word tonight, a word on hope in this, in this mini-series called Hope Has a Name. And, you know, spoilers, the name is Jesus, but we'll, we'll try and make it a bit more interesting than that for three different sermons. Um, I was just praying a moment ago, and I just had a vision of almost like being one of, the, one of those people in a park trying to, trying to throw out crumbs to pigeons, you know? And... Um, and in this analogy, you guys are the pigeons, sorry. That's, that's not particularly flattering, but just go with me. But I'm only throwing crumbs. Like, you, hear, you hear what I'm saying? That's not very much. So I'm like, this is, I can't feed people with crumbs, Lord. But, but he can, the Lord can. Whatever your need is, whatever your hunger, whatever your desire, I cannot meet it. But God can and will meet it in Jesus' name. So I just wanted to know what I bring tonight are just simple words that any human being can stand up here and preach, probably not as good as the average human being can say. But what God can do with those words to bring them to life in you is astonishing and is transformative. And I think the reason I had that, that sense of needing to throw crumbs out is because I, I feel the burden of people's pains over Christmas and the sicknesses and the, the mental health, the struggles that people have. And I'm just telling you, God is here in his love to meet you in every one of those pains, whether they're your burdens or burdens you carry on behalf of someone you love. Bring them to Jesus tonight. Amen? Amen. All right, can I just pray? And, and then I'm gonna get into the word. Jesus, we are just trying to throw out crumbs and, and pray they turn into bread. But luckily, we've read the word. We know that you turn it into bread and we live on every word that comes from the mouth of God, not from the bread that we try and feed ourselves with day after day. So God, we turn away from the things that we put our hope in off our own bat. We turn away from the struggles that we have in our own life that we perceive as bigger than us. And instead, we say, God, would you feed us with your word tonight? Would your Spirit come in power in a way that we are changed, that we are rocked by what you're doing in our lives. We give it all to you tonight, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay. One of the strangest parts of being a Christian, if you're a Christian in the room, you'll get this, is worshipping a guy who came back from the dead. 
it is it is objectively weird. And if and if you're here and you're like, I don't think it's that weird, then you've been a Christian too long. It is it's weird. It is a weird thing to do. And so if you if you ever speak to somebody and they're not a Christian and you say, Hey, what's your problem with Christianity? And they're like, feels weird that you worship a zombie. Like if they said that, okay, the theology can use some work, but you got to applaud the honesty. Like they, they, they do kind of have a point. But the thing is, we find this so discomforting because as a culture, we mostly either avoid or explain away death. We don't want anything to do with death. You skim through movies, music, literature, you'll find a thousand different visions of death and the afterlife and almost none of them have something to do with the Christian vision. So the author Haruki Murakami, for example, wrote that death is not the opposite of life, but a part of it, which sounds very meaningful until you ask, well, if it's a part of life, why do we fight against it so much? And then Stephen Hawking said this. He said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail, which frankly is bad news for Stephen Hawking. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Okay. But then what about bravery? What about beauty? What about purpose? What about the intangible things of life that we know to be true but we find difficult to quantify? Where do they come in if we are simply computerised brains that are unplugged at the end of our life? See, whether we read sci-fi stories about cryogenic chambers or we're taking vitamins and supplements to extend our lives or it's an AI concept to upload ourselves to the cloud or plastic surgery to avoid the appearance of ageing, either way, we've got a fear of death in our culture. We're not good with it. Which should make the Christian message of life after death even more attractive. And friends, I've got to tell you, every time you speak to somebody who is like, you know, on the on the giftedness scale of not very gifted evangelistically to very, very gifted, if you speak to those people, they are eyes lit up for this moment in time. They're like, this is the moment for the church. Because the church doesn't have any more like institutional structural credibility to hold on to. We only have Jesus. But at the same time, the culture around us is hungrier spiritually than there have been in 70 years. This is the time. And so we need to identify what are the needs, what are the fears in our culture and how does Jesus meet them? Because no matter what the needs and fears are in your life and in mine, Jesus meets them. He does. We don't always understand how, and that's part of our job. Tonight, I want to talk about how he meets the fear of death. Here is, I think, one of the most famous examples in the last 20 years of the fear and wrestling with death in popular culture, and it comes from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. (laughs) Now, in that... No, you think I'm joking. I'm deadly serious. Voldemort's obsession with death is one of the central tensions of the story, right? And he wants to be immortal. And so in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, the last book in the series, Harry and Hermione, they're looking for the graves of his parents, and eventually they find them, and they read this inscription. James Potter, born 27th March, 1960, died 31st October 1981. Lily Potter, born 30th January 1960, died 31st October 1981. Maybe the saddest part of the story is they were only around for a month of my life. (laughs) And on it it says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. This, This is now quoting from the book. Harry read the words slowly as though he would have only one chance to take in their meaning and he read the last of them aloud. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. A horrible thought came to him, and with it a kind of panic. Isn't that a Death Eater idea? Why is that there? See, Harry Harry panics at the idea that his parents were also obsessed with controlling death and living forever, but Hermione gently corrects him. No, no, it doesn't mean defeating death in the way that Death Eaters mean it, Harry, said Hermione, her voice gentle. It means, you know, living beyond death, 
living after death. And you may know this already, but that inscription now Googled by thousands and millions of Harry Potter obsessed fans is from 1 Corinthians 15. The King James Version to be exact. And as the most famous book series in almost 100 years drew to a finale, it culminates around the Word of God. As they wrestle with the meaning of life, they drink in the wisdom of the Bible. And it is to that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, we turn now. And I want to encourage you, have your Bible open in front of you. Sometimes we've got a bit of Scripture up on screen, and we'll do a lot of Scripture on screen tonight, but we're going to be going through the whole chapter. Like, it's going to be rich tonight. All right? So a meaty. So this, this is a message about resurrection, and you would think that's kind of the opposite of the point, right? It's an Easter message. But the thing is, it's about the coming hope of Jesus. And Christmas is about the coming hope of Jesus. Easter and Christmas are inextricably linked. We can't separate them. This is a message not just about what our hope is grounded in, but the object and future of our hope as well. Okay. So let's get into 1 Corinthians 15. It is a letter, 1 Corinthians, written to a gifted but chaotic church. And Paul is trying to help them learn how to live in a way in keeping with the gospel. And this is basically the culmination of the letter. There's only one more chapter after that. And that's kind of all the farewells where he's saying, say hi to this person, say hi to that person, Um, which is how you know it's a letter, right? Anyway, we'll start at verse number one. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul begins by just explaining what he's doing. He's saying, I'm trying to explain the gospel clearly. That's what I'm trying to do. I want you to understand what the gospel is. And historians believe that Paul then goes on to quote an early Christian creed that might predate his own letters. It has the sound of something that the church knew and recited together and passed down to, to each other. Like you think, of, you think of some of the sort of encounterisms we'll recite to one another that help us, you know, believe the best in people. You can belong before you believe. It's you're a buckler's church, a triple tithing church, et cetera, et cetera. All the things we say as, uh, amen, I receive that. All, all the things we say as, as culturally, but these, these are the sort of things that as they put this little creed together to go, okay, how do we share the gospel simply with people who are learning what it means to be a Christian? All right, well, let's have a few dot points. It's the sort of thing we try and do ourselves. So this is what he says. This is verse three. So these are the dot points, basically. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So this is Paul going, Easter. (laughs) But he goes on more specifically. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. That's his way of saying they're passed away, they're dead. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Christ. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So he goes through this long list. Here are all these people Jesus appeared to. Now, why is this important? Why quote all these names? These are references Paul wants us to understand that the physical resurrection of Jesus actually happened, just to be super clear. And if you don't believe him, here is a list of people you can go and talk to. Well, sure, Peter seems biased. Okay, talk to James. Well, James is Jesus' brother. Fine, talk to one of the more than 500 people who witnessed his resurrection. This, This is Paul's cliff notes. He's going back and saying, check my references. They're all there. I kept my receipts. Come on. The resurrection is not figurative. It's not an abstract concept. It happened. 
And so these, these hundreds of independent witnesses, and by the time people are reading this letter, they can go and find them for themselves. Are you with me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's jump ahead to verse 12 in case you weren't sure about Paul's opinions. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Why is this important? Well, you probably picked it up. But if Jesus has not been resurrected, here's the thing. We're preaching for no reason because nothing else is happening. They're just words. We have a pointless faith because it would be in a false God. We are then also false witnesses to Yahweh, the God of Israel. We'd be bearing false witness to him. We would still be dead in our sins and those that are dead already would be doomed to stay dead. That would be done. All of that would be true if Christ was not raised from the dead. Now, hold on to that because this is bleak. That is a hopeless vision, right? That is a vision without hope. This is the vision most people live out every day of their lives. None of this is true for many, many people across this globe. So where? Where is their hope? Where is their purpose? Where is their joy? That's why Paul wrote this. Paul wants us to understand that the resurrection needed to happen. This wasn't just something God was saying like, you watch this party trick, it's going to be very cool. No, no, no. This needed to happen. Without it, we're all wasting our time. We're doomed. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then he has not done what he said he would do, which means he is false and God cannot by definition be false. So Jesus cannot have been God. All of it falls apart without the resurrection. All of our hope is lost without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul starts by going, let me give you all the witnesses first so you can go and chat to them. If the resurrection didn't happen, we are in trouble. In verse 19, Paul puts it this way. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. What fools we would be if this was the case. Who's glad there's a but coming next? (laughs) Verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All right, so we're digging into theology of death and life and sin and the entry of sin into the world here. As death entered the world through Adam's faithlessness in the Garden of Eden, so life entered the world through Jesus' faithfulness in the Garden of Gethsemane and then onto the cross. Two different men, two different approaches to faith, two different gardens. One leads to death, one leads to life. Jesus is God's divine solution for Adam. Adam's sin removed hope from the world. Jesus' faithfulness gave hope back to the world. Jesus' holiness erased Adam's sin. Adam received life and caused death, but Jesus received death and caused life. He is the upside down king. This is a beautiful, powerful statement of the Christian hope. 
Our sin problem is resolved through Jesus. So this is a definition of Christian hope. Mere optimism assumes that bad circumstances will improve with the passing of time. But in contrast, hope assumes that God is faithful and is convinced that he is able to bring about his good purpose. That's the difference. So if you hear that, so mere optimism is naive, right? If all our hope is in optimism, that's naive. That's people buying crystals and charging their water by the moonlight and then convincing themselves they can like manifest a new BMW or something. Like, if you can do that, please come and see me afterwards because I would like to hear the results and purchase some of your manuals. But <laughs> until that point... I'm going to continue to put my trust in Jesus because yeah, it's proven. Optimism is mostly dependent on good luck and good vibes. Hope, on the other hand, is grounded in reality. Hope is certain because hope has a name. Hope is in the person of Jesus. You know, when we talk about faith in the book of Hebrews and the writer says, faith is being certain of what we want. Hope for, certain of what we hope for. The object of our faith, Jesus, proves our hope. We are certain in Christ of what we hope for. So hope is not abstract, it's not distant, it's not just throwing the line out and hoping to catch something. It's saying that because of Christ, it's already been caught, it's already done, it's already won. We have the victory, amen? Amen. It's good news. Hope is found in a person. It's been proven. It's been experienced personally and it continues to point towards a future that can be equally trusted. The Christian hope is fully tied up in Jesus who lived and died and was resurrected and is coming back again. And for those who are in Christ, all will be made alive again. Now from here, Paul gets into a slightly more complex passage that's still worth our attention tonight. Verse 23 to 26. But each in his own order... Christ, the first fruits. Afterwards, it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. This passage is about eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy Christian word for the study of end times. Uh, And it's talking about the order of the final resurrection when it happens. I'm not here to tell you when that's going to happen. That's how you would know it would be heresy. I don't know. Nobody knows. Just a little asterisk on any YouTuber you're watching who goes, let me tell you the date. Just turn off the video. (laughs) This is about the order of the final resurrection. Christ is resurrected first. How do we know that? Well, it's, it's... Already happened. Um, Yep. (laughs) He himself is the first fruits of the full resurrection, which will one day include you and I. Now, if you're sitting here and you're like, hang on, what about Lazarus? He came back from the dead. Lazarus was resuscitated, not resurrected. Here's the the difference. Someone who's been resuscitated, they come back to life and they live for an extended period of time and then they die. Jesus is resurrected and that he is brought back to life and that's it. He lives now and forevermore. That's the difference. So just in case you're wondering. So the first fruits of the full resurrection, which will one day include you and I, that's Jesus. But then Jesus will come again. And the second coming of Christ is an essential part of the hope we have in Him. It's the first coming we celebrate here at Christmas. But the second coming is still happening. So when we say words about Jesus, like He was and is and is to come, if you've heard that kind of language, we are affirming that the resurrected Jesus who has existed since the beginning or before the beginning of creation, existed in perfect unity as the second person of the Trinity for all creation, for beyond it all, 
He is coming again to put everything to right. Right? So what happens next? Then his saints and followers are resurrected, those who believe in him. That seems to mean believers who are already dead at that time. They will be resurrected next. Then the kingdom itself, that's the whole world. Everything is God's kingdom, whether it believes it or not. There's renewal coming for all things, all of creation, but only once the full hope of Jesus has been fulfilled as he comes again. And then finally, the great enemy, death. This is the tombstone verse from Harry Potter. Jesus reigns already. He himself has overcome death, but when he comes again, he will fully end the power of death over creation once and for all. Now, why is this important? And why did I bother leaving this fiddly passage in and not just skip over it? This is why. Paul wants us to understand that Christ's resurrection guarantees yours. Guarantees it. There's an important hope in that. And Paul wants us to understand that death is the enemy. Don't get confused with Satan, right? Like just because you've seen memes where Satan and Jesus are arm wrestling doesn't mean they're on an equal footing. Satan is not the enemy. He's an enemy. He's not really the enemy of God. The enemy of God is death. Satan is not on a level footing with God. Like Jesus won the victory. God's the creator. Satan is a created being. But death ends creation. Death has interrupted it. This is why, friends, you grieve a loss. This is why death hurts so badly and people fear it so much. Even though it's, it's, you know, quote unquote normal. It's like, oh, yeah, but death is just a part of life. Yes, but we still fight it. Why why are there famous poems? Uh, You know, Dylan Thomas, do not go quietly into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Why? Why would we write that? Because we know there's something wrong with death. It interrupts the life we experience. God is a God of life, but not death. And He is also a God of new life. That's what He's achieved for you in Jesus. Death is the end of hope. Every single person, no matter their experience in life, we get through it with more hope. I have hope that tomorrow will be a better day than today. I have hope that next year will be better than this year. I'm sure some of you in this room are like, please, yes and amen. But death is the end of that. And this is what N.T. Wright says about it. Death is the unmaking of the Christian hope. Resurrection is its remaking. There's an unmaking, but there's a remaking. So Paul acknowledges that death is actually to be feared. It is not wrong to grieve. It is not wrong to wrestle with this. Death rips life away from us. But because of the resurrection of Christ, death isn't just an enemy. Death is a defeated enemy. Death does not have the power over what happens to you after death. Christ has the power in that. He has achieved that for you. That is where your hope is. So while we can wrestle with death here on earth, there is a certainty to come. And it's hard to overstate how important the resurrection is because with it, we are victorious conquerors with Christ who will celebrate eternally with God. But without it, we are fakers pushing a false joy that has no meaning that lasts. Fair difference, right? Paul definitely agrees with this, which is why he says this in verse 32. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? So we think of like the gladiatorial arena, right? Paul being thrown to the beast. He didn't like just go in the forest and challenge a wolf to a fist fight, to the best of my knowledge. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
So Paul figures that if the resurrection did not happen, why would the disciples bother facing persecution and death? You ever thought that about your Christian faith? Yes, you have. Like, why am I doing this? Why, this is hard. Why am I bothering with this? Like, the pagans down the road look like they're doing just fine and frankly with more money. <laughs> why? Maybe that's just a pastor thing. Not me, but other pastors. <laughs> Triple tithing. <clears throat> why? Why? Why would the disciples face persecution and death? Why not just party all our lives? Why not spend your time with people of low character? Eat, drink for tomorrow we die, AKA who cares? You could almost make it the slogan for Australian life. Ah, Eat, drink for tomorrow we die. Or no worries, mate. Don't worry about it. That's that's the way most of the Australian population live. They live without hope. They just want to get through the day without thinking too much about it so they can anesthetise themselves with a beer and a Netflix at the end of the day. That's not life, guys. That is not what Christ died for. It's actually not shallow, it's bleak. That life often masks a deep pain. That's nihilism in action. It's a belief that not only do our actions not have eternal consequences, but that our actions in our lives are really totally irrelevant. Who cares? What's the difference between us and a bug, us and a flower? It's pretty dark. So why is Paul saying this? Paul wants us to understand that the resurrection doesn't just give you a future hope. The resurrection gives our lives present purpose today. It's because of the resurrection that we can look at our lives and say, right now I have mission, I have purpose, I have meaning, I've got something to do. Paul's point is that because the resurrection is true, our lives now have a greater purpose. We can't just live our lives without any meaning because our lives do have meaning. And I know that to be true because when I explore it in experience and go, what if I just veg out this week? Why do I feel worse? Why do we feel worse when we go, I'm going to do all the things, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to binge out on alcohol. I'm going to have tons of junk food. I'm going to hang out with terrible people. How do you feel at the end of that week? Not well, not good, no. Right, but you did all the things you wanted to do as much as you wanted to do them. That's right. Okay, so maybe Jesus is onto something. This is a theology of the now and the not yet, what is and what is to come. So that is to say the physical resurrection we ultimately have in Christ should lead to a spiritual regeneration in our lives today. They're not meant to be separate. That's a whole nother sermon. But no matter your age, your stage of life, your history, your social standing or your relationship status, if you have received Jesus as your Lord, you have stepped into resurrection life. You are a new creation. Whole new And for some of you, I just need you to hear that it's freeing. Your past does not define you. Jesus sees it, heals it, releases you from it in forgiveness and creates in you someone brand new in Christ. In Christ. This is the life you've been gifted by the grace of God and through the sacrifice of Jesus. So death is still the final enemy, but it's like the final enemy has been placed under Jesus' feet waiting for him to come back and press down on the neck of the serpent and crush it once and for all. Our present hope will be fulfilled in the life to come. That's a guarantee of Jesus. Hope deferred will be hope fulfilled. The great theologian Jürgen Moltmann put it this way. From first to last, and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is hope. Forward-looking and forward-moving, 
and therefore also revolutionising and transforming the present. I want to read this one more time, just give a little colour commentary, right? From first to last, all of life, all of history, and not just in the epilogue, not just down here, because I think sometimes we think that way, right? Like, well, our lives don't matter, but yeah, I, I better say sorry to God on my deathbed, right? No, no, no. God. Christianity is hope that whole time. You, 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 don't, you don't win by cheating God of your life and then snatching it back at death. You, you lose. You will get into the presence of God in heaven and go, why did I waste my life? And you'll be answering that question because Jesus will ask it of you. Christianity is not just hope. It's forward-looking. It's forward-moving. It's not tethered to your past and your pain. Lay it down. And so it revolutionises and transforms the present in your life and in the whole world. The future hope we have in Jesus has ripple effects in your life today. It affects how you live. And if you're here and you haven't put your trust in Jesus and you say, well, you say that, but... I kind of believe that that's how you should live anyway. That is my moral framework. That is because this country was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. You are living under the moral framework of Christianity. Sorry, if you, yeah. <laughs> Read a history book. Um, that was a bit more, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to be passive aggressive like that. But yeah, this, is, this is the reality of, of, of the Australian Landscape. We have grown up under the Judeo-Christian ethics. So even people who don't live as Christians often live with the framework of Christianity around much of their life and their understanding of how to live. A whole other sermon. Let me get back to this one. When I say that a physical resurrection in the future should lead to a spiritual regeneration now, what does that look like? Well, think of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are evidences of what God is doing in you. And you know it's evidences of what God is doing in you because you can only do them yourself up to a point and then the self-control one snaps first. (laughs) And then probably like the gentleness one, I think, snaps pretty quickly after that. And patience snaps pretty quickly. They all start snapping. It's like a whole series of rubber bands, right? One after the other. You can only do that for so long. But when the Holy Spirit works within us, you find you have patience in situations where you've never had patience before. And actually joy comes out of it. You, you find you radiate with joy and love. And you're like, I haven't been through a time where I should be radiating joy and love. And can I tell you, if you don't have the Spirit, you will go through times where you feel like you should be radiating joy and love and you're still miserable. And you don't know why. It's the Spirit of God, my friends. The Spirit of God working in you. That's the spiritual regeneration happening now. And so those people who stop and let themselves be filled with the Spirit regularly, renew themselves in Christ through His Spirit, they're the ones who it bursts forth from. we like, I need to hang out with that person. I, uh, I, I love hearing Steph and Taryn talk about uh, evangelism, street evangelism that they do. And Steph complaining in his unique way that uh, he's been doing it for years, but Taryn comes out for three weeks and people are just like, let me give my life to Jesus with you, Taryn. Because <laughs> Taryn's just like that. And so you are too, Steph. You are, you are too, very much, bursting forth and so on. But these are your words, not mine. And there's something about Taryn that people go, can I just, can I just be around this person, please? There's something about it. it's the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God. Even when we endure hardships, Paul sees that because of the resurrection, we experience them in a different way. We belong to God now. So in Romans 5.5, Paul says, our hope, 
will not disappoint us. Will not because of God, because our hope is in the future. So you can and will go through horrific hardships today, but because your hope is ultimately in what is to come, you know that God will renew you spiritually now and renew you physically. There is a certain hope that is to come because of the certain hope that has come in the resurrection of Jesus in the past. It's past, present and future all working together. And that is so critically important. If you're here and you are having a good day, you probably don't care about that. But if you've had a tough time lately, I need you to hear that. There is a hope deferred that is coming. And because of that, you can put your trust in that coming because of what you know has happened in the past and that can renew and revitalise you today. No matter how bad you feel, we put our feelings away. We don't put them away. In fact, we give them to God. And we trust Him to renew us. See, we are still living in the now and not yet. That's how we're living. While we're here, life remains complex. It's difficult. It's full of uncertainty in many ways. And and Ben, you guys can come back up. Uh, and, And honestly, we can struggle to feel hope, can't we? Sometimes, let's be honest. But the resurrection of Jesus is a proof to hold on to, regardless of our feelings. Isn't that good? Isn't I, I tend to be more of a Bible than prayer guy. I need to be both because you can't have one without the other. But I think one of the reasons is I know that every time I open this, I'm reading what God's saying to me. Yeah. And sometimes when I'm praying, I'm like, oh God, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> but, but when I read the Word... When I open 1 Corinthians 15, I let it speak to me and I hear about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Even if I felt bad, I also feel certain. Yeah. I, I, I know what God has done. It's here. Now you are all walking testimonies of what God has done. If you're somebody who calls Jesus your Lord and Saviour, you are a living, breathing, walking testimony. Yeah. Paul calls you an ambassador of hope. You are Christ's ambassadors and what you are bringing to people is true hope. I can't tell you how many people need that this Christmas. More than you know. Do do you know why we push this again and again? We're like, plus one culture, invite your friends. We're just ringing the same bell again and again, right? Trust me, I know. It's because this, this is a place of hope. This is an opportunity to go, we're basically doing this and spending a lot of money and expending a lot of effort because, hey, we do like doing really good community stuff, but mostly because this is a place where we think you'll discover hope. And not just a hope, the hope. The hope. Hope made flesh. Hope with the name of Jesus. Hope that everybody you know needs, no matter how confident they appear on the outside. There is a hope in Jesus that is needed. Because of Jesus Christ, we have a certain hope. And friends, if you know Jesus as your Lord, if you place all your trust in Him, if you cultivate a relationship with Him, you can bypass the ingrained insecurity of the world and you can understand questions of purpose and you can avoid the global anxiety about death because Jesus has won the victory. 
So let me leave you with the last two verses of 1 Corinthians 15, this glorious chapter that affirms our hope in Jesus. The last two verses. Therefore, no, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Whatever you do for God matters. doesn't matter if it feels small or big. Everything matters. I just want to honour every person who's serving on team today, uh, whether you're serving in a behind-the-scenes role or an upfront role. Every one of you is serving together to see the gospel proclaimed and hope made flesh to people. Thank you. Every one of you who are in prisons on a Sunday morning or through the week, who are in schools, sometimes feel a bit like a prison. Nursing mums, dads working multiple jobs, single parents, uni students, high school students. You're a treasure. Everything you do, retirees, everything you do that is for God is an act of hope for His kingdom. Every piece of it, like a tiny piece of the puzzle for a hopeless world to see that there is hope to be found in Jesus Christ for them.